Okay, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And let's just set that in context before we look at the specific snapshot. Mark has been showing Jesus' authority through examples of miracles and examples of Jesus casting out demons. So Jesus teaching and preaching and ministering as one with authority, and his ministry is growing. In fact, people are coming to him from everywhere. He's been traveling from town to town in Galilee, speaking in their synagogues. He's been spending lots of time actually out in the country because his reputation has grown so big that it's overwhelming for him to enter into their cities. So now he's out in the country, but people are coming to him from the cities, from all over Galilee, to him out in the country. And so he's ministering to large crowds of people out in the hillsides of Galilee, and he's doing so, Mark wants us to know, with authority. Well, after doing that for a bit, Jesus returns back to Capernaum, his home base for his ministry, and Mark records a story that takes place in uh, Capernaum and takes Jesus' authority to a whole new level. Here's what happens. When Jesus came back to Capernaum, he's been out and about in the countryside, he's been traveling to their towns, right, spreading his message all around Galilee. Well, now he comes back to Capernaum. So when Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later, it was heard that he was at home. That phrase, at home, literally is in the house or in a house. So it's not just that he's back in Capernaum at home, he's in a house, probably Peter and Andrew's house, because that was the last house that was mentioned in Capernaum, it's quite possible that Peter and Andrew's house sort of becomes home base in Capernaum for Jesus and his team, though we don't know that for sure. So he's back in Capernaum, most likely at Peter and Andrew's house. Word has spread that he's back in town and people knew where to find him. And so look at verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no longer space even near the door and he was speaking to them. And so if you recall in our last recording, Jesus was at Peter and Andrew's house. Uh, the whole crowd town gathers in front of the door. He's healing sick people, casting out demons. Well, this time it is just jam-packed all around the house, all around the door, all around the front of the house. Uh, it's just packed full a massive crowd. Uh, there's not even space near the door. Like you can't get through the crowd. That's set up for what happens. So there's Jesus teaching this crowd of people gathered around. And there's a small group of people that are desperate to get to Jesus. Look at verse three. Some people came bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And so you have these these, this small group of people with a paralyzed man on some sort of cot or some sort of mat, and he's being carried along by four men. And they're desperate to get to Jesus. They're determined to get to Jesus. Uh, but you got this massive crowd at the door, and they're going to struggle to get through. So verse 4, when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. So these friends are absolutely determined to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They bring him. They can't get through the crowd. And so because of that, they decide, let's go up on the roof. 
Now, typically, roofs in Israel were flat. They often had stairs leading up to them or sometimes ladders leading up to them because they were used for storage. They were even used as a place to sit or pray, a place to maybe uh, visit and relax in the evening, get a breeze off the cool of the Sea of Galilee here in Capernaum, right? I'll put some pictures in the study hub of, uh, it's an, uh, actually an artist's rendition of a uh, Capernaum and a flat roof looking out towards the sea so you can get an idea of what the scene might have looked like. And so the roof was accessible because they were frequently used that way. So it makes perfect sense. Let's go up on the roof. The problem is if you get on the roof, you still have to get the man down to Jesus. Uh, and so they climb up on the roof and the roof is typically like it's, it's flat with dirt and mud, maybe some grass growing in it. You peel that away. Um, and there was often like wood cross beams um, and thatch and hardened dirt over those wood cross beams. And so they pull all that back and then they make a large enough opening to lower this man through. And they lowered their friend down on the pallet or the mat or the cot, whatever it was, they lower him down um, through the hole in the roof in front of Jesus. I always imagine this scene wondering what it was like when all of a sudden the dirt started falling. Jesus is in the house teaching, right? People are in the house. People are outside of the house. All of a sudden, you start to get a commotion on the roof. All of a sudden, they start peeling things back. It's a dirt roof, right? So now dirt and mud and chunks are going to be falling through uh, down into where the people are. People moving out of the way. Everyone looking up. People getting dirt in their eyes. That's sort of the scene that's going on here. Uh, and then they lower this man in front of Jesus. And verse 5 says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice it says, seeing their faith. Faith is made visible by their actions. Uh, their faith was their confidence and certainty that Jesus could heal their friend. They had that much confidence in him. That's their faith. So much so that they climbed on the roof and they dug a hole to lower this man down in front of Jesus. But Jesus' response to the man is unexpected. Jesus doesn't say, you're healed. Jesus doesn't say, get up and walk. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the man's greatest need, but this is not what his friends were hoping they would hear. And though in Jewish thought of the day, disease or a physical infirmity like this might be linked to sin, um, and you see that in Jewish thought, and you see hints of that in biblical teaching, this was not always viewed to be the case. So while that's possible, and maybe that's why Jesus says it, it's not necessary, and there's really no reason to assume that's the case here. It seems to me that Jesus is simply addressing this man's greatest need and giving an occasion to display his authority at a whole new level. So let's keep watching what happens in the story, and you'll see what I mean by that. Uh, the reaction of the Jewish leaders that are gathered around, there's some Jewish leaders maybe in the crowd outside the, the house, their reaction indicates why Jesus' statement about this man's sins being forgiven is so utterly shocking. Look at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And so their reaction uh, really speaks of how shocking Jesus' 
words are. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And they're shocked, and they they believe that Jesus is blaspheming. In other words, they think he's taking on the status and the role of God himself, who alone can forgive sins. Now, it's true that the priest in the temple pronounced forgiveness of sins on behalf of God. And it's true that we have uh, examples of Old Testament prophets, such as Nathan in the case of David, speaking on God's behalf, communicating that God had forgiven them. But what Jesus says is different. Um, here's Jesus. He's not a priest. He's not in the temple. And he's simply pronouncing forgiveness. And he's not saying that God had forgiven this person. He's simply speaking as if he's the one granting this man forgiveness. No temple, no sacrifice, just Jesus and his word. Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's why the scribes are so shocked. These scribes, a scribe is someone who's an expert in Old Testament law, these scribes react the way they do because in their mind, Jesus is blaspheming. He's assuming the authority of God. And so and they are really on the verge of charging Jesus with a very serious uh, crime that by Old Testament law carried the penalty of stoning, blaspheming. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he doesn't back away from the claim. And that makes it even more shocking. Now, he wholeheartedly embraces his authority to forgive sins. Look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were thinking this way within themselves, that's important too, right? Like, they haven't vocalized this. Jesus just knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking because he knows the kind of people they are. He knows their thought patterns. But perhaps even as a prophet and someone greater than a prophet, he can read their minds, read their hearts. And so he knows what they're thinking. And so he said to them, why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. I mean, Jesus at one level could simply say, your sins are forgiven. And how are you going to prove that wrong? How are you going to demonstrate that it didn't happen? Right? So in that sense, it's easier. There's no way you could validate or invalidate that the sins have or have not been forgiven. If Jesus says, on the other hand, get up and walk, but the man doesn't get up and walk, well, then you know that Jesus is a false prophet. So in that sense, it's harder. Um, it's immediately obvious in the case of get up and walk whether it worked or not. And that's the point of Jesus' question. So Jesus asked the question, and then he goes on um, to say and to show that he actually does have the authority to forgive sins. So what's easier, saying your sins are forgiven? Get up, take up your pallet, and walk. Well, verse 10, but Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so Jesus is not going to back away from his authority to forgive sins. Jesus is not going to back away uh, from his power to heal the man. He's actually going to say, healing the man shows that I actually do have authority to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, verse 11, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he, the paralyzed man, got up and immediately he picked up the pallet that he had been lying on. He went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, 
We've never seen anything like this. Notice there in verse 10 the word authority. And recall that Mark has uh, begun his depiction of Jesus' ministry with the people being shocked at his teaching because it came with authority. That started in 122 and has been emphasized by the examples of Jesus' miracles and exorcisms thereafter. So Mark places this story here as another example of Jesus' authority. And what Mark tells us or what Jesus tells us, and Mark includes for us, is that Jesus' authority includes the authority to forgive sins. He has this authority um, to, to forgive people's sins, and the proof of that is that he can speak to this man and tell him to get up, take your pallet, and go walk on home. Notice also that in the midst of this, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In other words, he has this authority, the authority that is being displayed all throughout his teaching, his preaching, his miracles, his exorcism, and here, this healing and his authority to forgive sins. He has that authority as the Son of Man. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, can refer simply to a human being. It's used that way in various places in the Old Testament. In fact, in Hebrew, it's just been Adam, son of Adam. That means human. But... This title is significant for Jesus because it comes from Daniel chapter 7. And there in Daniel 7, it's used for the Messiah who ascends to the throne of God and sits on that throne with God as king over all the nations. In Daniel, he's described as one like a son of man. That is, he looks human in Daniel chapter 7, but at the same time, he sits side by side with Yahweh and he reigns over the kingdom of God. And thus, that title, Son of Man, is an exalted royal title. So when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, he's claiming that he has that authority as the Son of Man and that that authority includes the authority to forgive sins. Where's the proof? Well, he heals the man. He enables him to walk. He does it right there in public with the entire crowd gathered around. Such a large crowd that you couldn't even make your way uh, through it to get to the door. Everyone could see it. Everyone could verify it. Even his opponents could see and verified what happened. He healed this man in public. And the man gets up. He takes his mat and he walks out of the house. Notice in the sight of all, there in verse 12. Everyone saw it. It was a public healing, and all the people were amazed and shocked. Jesus had healed a man. He did so in public. He did so to put the religious experts in their place. He did so describing himself as the Son of Man and as having the divine right to forgive sins. Truly, they had never seen anything like this before. And so in this little snapshot, the authority of Jesus, again, is on full display. And that authority includes forgiveness of sin. Jesus' authority extends beyond his teaching. It extends beyond casting out demons. It extends beyond healing. He has the authority to forgive sins. This is divine authority. It's authority to restore people to God. It's authority that comes as king, the king over all the nations, the son of man. 
It's an authority that is a, actually enables him to meet our deepest need. And so as the Son of Man, the King of Kings, Jesus can forgive sins. Hey, it's John, and I just wanted to say a real quick thank you to those of you who generously support the listener's commentary and make this ministry possible. Whether you live in the U.S., whether you live in South Africa, whether you live in the U.K., your faithful generosity is a blessing to thousands of people all around the world. So thanks a ton for that. If you've been impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider setting up a monthly donation to support this work? We are only at about 75% of minimum monthly needs, so your uh, your faithful support would go a long way to helping the listener's commentary continue to grow and increase its impact. So if you set up a monthly recurring donation, you get free access to the study hub as well. So if you've been impacted in some way, I just invite you to prayerfully consider setting up a monthly donation. You can do that at the link down in the notes below or go to listenerscommentary.com give and you can set up a donation right there. Thanks a ton.